Hello and welcome to the Golf World Podcast, a show all about education and inclusion. I'm Richard Ingram. Technical and Vocational Education and Training, or TVET for short, is a topic that's often forgotten when discussing educational matters. TVET, according to UNESCO, empowers individuals, organisations, enterprises and communities and fosters employment, decent work and lifelong learning. It all sounds good to me. But as we'll hear on the show, it often carries with it a certain reputation when compared to quote-unquote more academic subjects. However, it is particularly important to discuss in the context of making education more inclusive. TVET can provide much-needed life skills and employment skills for marginalised learners. Joining me to talk about this, and a host of other interesting things, is Rachel Philander. Based in Windhoek, Rachel is the Chief Education Officer in the Ministry of Education, Arts and Culture in Namibia. There she heads up the division responsible for special needs and inclusive education and is perfectly placed to discuss issues around TVET and inclusion in the context of that fascinating country on the southwest tip of Africa. Rachel Philander, welcome to Goal 4. Thank you, Richard. I'm very excited to be here and thank you for inviting me. It's no problem. It's fantastic to speak to you. Um, It's been a while since we last spoke. Uh, You're based in Namibia. First of all, I'd like to ask, what does the education system look like there? Are we talking government-funded schools that are free, or do families pay for education? And would you say that the education is an inclusive system? Yes, in Namibia, our philosophy is built on four goals. They are access, equity, quality, and democracy. Uh, So let me address the first three. For access, uh, we introduced free pre-primary in 2013. We call it primary education grant. Three years later, we introduced the secondary education grant. So with this, access was guaranteed. Uh, That means parents don't have to pay for school fees. However, we all know schools need more than just that little that parents contribute. So as a result, schools are encouraged to do a little bit of fundraising and not try to milk, if I could call it that way, the parents for more money because that would now defeat the purpose of access. The government additionally also add funds for the procurement of stationery. We all know how much books and pens and and we don't talk about computers and and all those. We just talk about the the necessary stuff when the child enters school. All that costs a lot of money. So yes, that is excess. In the absence of anything else that the parents contribute, obviously, Quality can be jeopardized, so schools should have ex- extra funds. The second one that I would like to talk about is equity, and that's where our learners with special educational needs and disabilities come in. Now, we all know equity refers more to fairness and justice as opposed to equality, where everybody gets the same share. And that brings me to disability and poverty. I think there is a quite strong link between the two. I've seen in Namibia, I've been in special schools for at least 10 years before I came to head office. So I've seen that it's mostly the 
parents who are very poor who have the kids with disabilities. And my specialization is deafness. So I've also seen that deafness is hereditary and it's also caused by measles and malaria that's very common here in our country. And many times it could have been prevented. So I think parents, the not negligent, but also their level of education contributes to that. So for me, disability can be caused by poverty or poverty causes disability. And obviously those kids are at a disadvantage. Thus, we cannot say we apply equality. We should rather strive to equity. Yeah, and on um, on equity, there's a you hear those two words a lot, and they can be quite confusing. Mm-hmm. They sound quite similar. Um, <laughs> there's a there's a really good there's a really good visual that helps to to clarify this, and I'll put this in the link uh, below the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's to do with, I mean, it's not doesn't sound like it's to do with education, but it's to do with riding bicycles. And the idea here is okay. that you have lots of different people, all different sizes. You know, children, adults, big people, small people. Mm-hmm. And everyone gets given exactly the same bike, and that's equality. And mm-hmm. you say, off you go, okay, ride mm-hmm. your bike. Okay, that bike works for one or two people, but most people, it's either too big or too small. And the idea with equity is that everyone gets a bike that is the right size for them. Yes, definitely. We have to address that gap that the child with disability and special needs have before he or she can compete with the others who already have that advantage of having the the bike that suits his needs from the start, I would say. Yes, that's what I mean with equity. At least we we acknowledge that. I must share with you our, our, our top management. I'm speaking now of the executive director. She knows, uh, the, the needs of our need of our learners with special educational needs and uh, on paper we get grants like I said edu- uh, primary education grant and second edu- education grant so for the mainstream learner it would be one on one but for the learner with special needs he or she will get three times more now that's on paper <laughs> So once it's distributed, it doesn't necessarily reach the learner. It's put in a pot and obviously normally they take whatever the needs are there and they will just use it for and the learner with disabilities will never get that three times more, the grant. And this year with our financial year, they even try or they promise to increase it to five times more because our learners with disabilities have so many needs and that's apart from just the educational needs, just for them to come to school and to access education and to participate, not just access, but also participation is very important. So yeah. yes, we need all that money. Well, tell me quickly about that uh, before we move on bef- about that funding technique, because that's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but that sounds like quite a decentralized process where you're you're providing funding that then on the ground within a certain context can then be dished out to as and where it's uh, needed. Yes, and yes, Richard, that, that's true. And then what the the concept that you brought in decentralized, yes. So this funding, it we get it from the minister ministry of finance. It's come to us. Every every ministry gets its budget, and then we obviously demarcate it to different programs. So this funding is there, and then it will be sent to we have 14 regions all over the country. So each regional director will then get his or her funding. 
and then it should they should have uh, they have uh, data on learners with special educational needs, and as such, that funding should have been distributed to the learners, our learners, three times more than for the mainstream learner, just one time. You have particularly somewhere like Namibia, you have such different regions as well. You have a very urban population in Windhoek and then some very remote places as well. And it wouldn't make sense to have a totally centralized system controlling that. Um, and I, yeah, I believe some other countries are doing that as well. Now I want to come on to your, um, you've spoken about the ministry. You work at the, uh, the Ministry of Education, Arts and Culture, and you've already spoken about some links with the Ministry of with Finance. What does an average day look like for you in the in the ministry? Okay, Richard, for that one, you know, I've been in this ministry my, all my years. I'm about to retire soon in three years' <laughs> <Yeah>. time. <laughs> yes. so, you, so you're the expert on that. <laughs> uh, yes, I'm supported by many others. Yeah, but yes, we are all expertise. Yeah. So I've um my day, normal day in, in the office. Before I embarked on that, let me talk about decentralization that you touched on already. Sure. So when I came in office 2007, there was not decentralization yet, but in 2010-12, it started to happen seriously. So prior to decentralization, we had our own budget for special needs. So that meant we could do training, we could procure equipment for our learners, there were enough braille machines, everything that the, that the learners and the teachers wished we, they wish were our command. Decentralization is good, like you said. It has, yeah, it must, it brings the education system to the to the people. However, it also has its challenges. We already alluded to that before that yes, the regional directors get the funds, but because they don't understand the needs of the learners, they don't necessarily see the relevance of giving that three times more instead. And as a result of that, our learners still suffer. Now, how does that impact on my office duties? Because many of our uh, principals in all, all our officials in special edu needs education, we are prone to stay in this position. So we come a long way, just like I reflect now in the good old days before when money was there. They also remember that before decentralization, there was a lot of money. So they still think our division can make things happen, miracles can happen. So normally they should report to the regional director, but they will come straight to our offices when, there's, when they don't find placement, schools are crowded, when there's no funds for procuring braille machines, they will come to us. And that is and just, quite a daunting <laughs> feeling, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt and we'll come back to that straight away. But I just wanted to touch on the, mm -hmm. you mentioned the good old days and funding. What's what's happened recently then that's seen, uh, seen levels of funding change? Recently, there's just, we get still a huge part of the budget, but it's more on on, on operational costs and it doesn't reach the schools as such. It's more on paying salaries. Schools are not uh, uh, equipped and they dilapidated. And I can't even talk about special schools, all the equipment that they need, it's not there. So you can definitely see it and feel it now. There's definitely a difference between back then and now. 
But I must say we get a lot of, of support from UN agencies. Recently, the Japan government of Japan also built uh, four classrooms in a very remote area, which is happened to be my region. We built to a special school there. Yes, so uh, I think at least we have enough space sort of for our learners. I'm not talking about the mainstream, that is, that is chaos. We, our schools really, we need more to build more schools and also to renovate those that are totally dilapidated. Yeah, yeah, back to my role. So sometimes yeah. you feel good when you achieve something, but many, many times you feel you totally in despair. What can I do differently? And people have so much hope. <laughs> yeah, and I must say, I serve because I've been here for many years. I serve on many forums and and and, and uh, meetings for representing learners with special educational needs. And for me, I've realized education should be a joint responsibility because we don't just get those kids from somewhere. They come a long way before they get to education. And to illustrate that, I would just like to, 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 to make a simple example of the ECD. We have the child is born, she needs a birth certificate. So for that, we need the Ministry of Home Affairs and Immigration. And we need also Ministry of Health, obviously, just to deliver that child for that matter. And I think that that, that collaboration is somehow lacking. Because many of the kids that reach our schools, they are over age. For instance, the deaf, which is my specialization, deaf learners, when they come to our schools, they are nine years old and they don't have sign language. What they have is basic gestures. There's no language development because the parents are hearing. So they have already that backlog and being born into poverty, it's just difficult to catch up. So back to uh, collaboration. Uh, we serve on the National Disability Forum, or I serve on the National Disability Forum, where I represent our, my ministry. And there I've realized that that collaboration is very important. Just the, the organizations for persons with disabilities, everybody has its mandate and its strength. So if we all take hands together, we can really safeguard that child and not let him or her fall through the cracks. Uh, yeah, that's basically that I would uh, propose for inclusive. In, I don't. I. I don't want to say inclusive education. The moment they hear education, they say it's Ministry of Education. I prefer to say inclusion of all because it's not just learners with disabilities that should be included. It's those who are hungry, and we include them. We have the National uh, Safe School. I know National School Feeding Program, which is running in most in all the primary schools. And they're looking into running it into starting it into secondary schools also. So that's just a simple example of a hungry child cannot learn. And that does, it's not just limited to our learners. Mm -hmm. So that is collaboration for me. So basically, yeah. when I enter the office, I must address all that. Is that all? Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> it sounds like there's a lot on your plate. And um, <laughs> at, at risk of a shameless self-promotion here, this is a this is what we've spoken about on the podcast before with some of my other guests, this idea of working in a, in coordination and collaboration, this systems approach. I think this is why this is so important. And uh, you yourself contributed to the, the UNESCO systems tool, which we're working uh, with in the, in the region at the moment. So I think that I'm on the same page as you there. That's, that's so important to bring those different ministries together, those different organizations together. I like the phrase you used, 
if we all uh, hold hands together, it, it can it can work. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You you mentioned um, mainstream schools and you spoke briefly about special education schools. You've worked a lot in the area of TVET as well. Now, TVET stands for Technical Vocational Education and Training. Um, and it's an area that's sometimes overlooked in conversations about education. Could you tell me a little bit about TVET? Uh, what is it and why is it so important? Thank you, Richard. <laughs> I felt so good when I read when you say you've worked a lot on TVET. That happened by accident, you know. I'm just a teacher with not, not really much TVET background, but I'm becoming the expert now because of what's happening in the country. And I must say it's quite exciting. So TVET, I must first acknowledge my colleague, Ms. Gary says she's uh, responsible for curriculum development at our National Institute for Educational Development. She, she and her colleagues developed this basic pre-work skills training in 2012 already after consulting with, I think Botswana was very uh, uh, instrumental in that. So this comes a long way. I only came on board recently, like five years ago, maybe. That's when I came on board with TVET. So for us, TVET, obviously technical. There's a technical part and there's the vocational part. Uh, now let us rather focus on the vocational part because our learners cannot really access uh, universities and the techni technical part is a bit above their capabilities. Uh, initially, we had problems with the vocational part because parents seem to think that this is for the uneducated. Once we visited a school in Kavango East, when we got there, parents were up in arms. They don't want the kids to enter this basic pre-voc skills training because it's just for the dump and the others uh, make fun of them, bully them because of that. So luckily we were there, we were a team of experts there and we set the record straight. So now it's not just us trying to change their minds. It's like the whole country has realized that this is the way to go. So now we have on board the uh, higher institutions of education. We have on board our national training authority. We have on board those who uh, give qualifications, the national qualifications, uh, uh, quality assurance. All of us take hands to make sure that TVET gets not just the, get the attention that it deserves, but also the, the accreditation. And that's where our learners come in. We have this basic skills uh, course. Uh, so what is this course? This course was tailor-made for our learners. That means we must look at what their needs are. Uh, and what their capabilities are. So we divided the course in 70% of skills training versus 30% of subjects that complement the training. Why did we uh, introduce this course? Is because we want learners to first get employed uh, and they won't get employed equal to the mainstream learner. They will be an assistant. So where we have a technician there, our learners will be an assistant to the techni technician. So that's the first option. The second option is we hope for them to get self-employed also 
or to progress in the studies at any TVET institution for those who can do it, obviously with the help of learning support because they still have that backlog and we can never decline or deny that part. They need that learning support even when they go into TVET's uh, institutions. Yeah, interesting. Yes. And um, just for the for those that haven't really worked in this area before, and non-experts, myself included, what what are we talking about when we say skills here? So you, you mentioned seventy percent skills, thirty percent uh, subjects that sort of complement those. What what give give me some examples? Thanks, Richard. Yes, skills we differentiate between soft and hard skills. Now the soft skills are like hairdressing and hospitality, cooking. We also have ECD where we train them to become assistants. And then the hard skills are uh, motor mechanics, woodwork, and carpentry, building studies. Those are the skills. So okay. those so it's all like, quite it's all quite hands-on. Yes, especially yes, the hard, especially the hard skills. Yes, and, and there I rely again back on my my experience as a deaf educator. Yes, our deaf learners, they learn visual. So what they observe, that's what they remember and they practice. So for them, they're actually very good with this. But you can imagine a child who's born into a hearing family and is deaf and he never had any, I've never seen or hear a word. He must now do phonics. He cannot write. So obviously he will be at a big disadvantage. So yes. Uh, we we are more into skills training, but 70%. And then obviously we'll talk about later about the, the assessment. How do we do the assessment to complement what the learners should be able to demonstrate? But yes, that is basically the TVET, 70% skills. And then the 30% is like, let me see if I can remember them. The first, of course, is communication. Now, communication in the work environment and basic numeracy. They have to learn work orientation because they have to learn how to operate and how to manage themselves in a in a formal setting. Like our deaf learners, they're prone to just, just when they feel sick, they won't inform the, the employer. <laughs> they will just stay at home because they're sick. So that they must be taught. ICT and what is the other one? Ah, that slipped my mind, but there are five mm. uh, supplementary courses for, uh, for that 30%. And it's very basic. Would you would you like to see more of this in mainstream education? That's a good question. You know, we adopted this from mainstream. How we introduce basic pre-work is we identify each region has uh, one or two schools for, for technical, for Tibet. So then once we see there are learners with special needs, they normally they are in a learning support class or then in a special school that we refer to as a resource school. We also have resource units that is just a smaller special school. So with resource units and resource schools, we refer to one uh, disability in a school. So we cannot put them all deaf, blind, intellectually impaired and learning difficulties in one school and call them resource school. We separate them because their needs are different. So yes, uh, back to your question. We, we identify these learners and we know there are workshops uh, well-equipped workshops in mainstream schools because that's where the government started years ago when they implemented TVET. They identify schools, they equip themselves very well, but I must say they, they omitted a few things that I will talk about later. Okay, so uh, 
we then saw the opportunity of using the same workshops because there's no money. Our learners were not catered for. So now we, in collaboration with the school, we, they must now share these workshops and the teachers for that matter, so that we, they can't say, but we cannot bring your learners on board because we don't have funds. So like those five supplementary subjects, numeracy and maths are the same, English and communication, the same ICTs, it's, I mean, it's across and it's just general. There's no differentiation between ICT for the deaf and ICT for the mainstream. Work orientation is like life skills. And then the other one is entrepreneurship. So those are the skills that they, that they the subjects that they taught at mainstream school. And those are the supplementary subjects that we need for our course. So we share the teachers and we share the workshops. Then, interesting enough, you ask for whether this can be rolled out to mainstream schools. Yes, many uh, principals saw, but this there's a need for their kids. When we say you and I and they and them and us, then we, I refer to mainstream kids because they are in learning support classes or some of them are just idling there with the mainstream and get neglected and drop out. So then they realize these kids can benefit from this course. So now they approach us. So this course is not just implemented in our schools, but also in mainstream schools. That's the good part of it. And of course, that approaches the idea that, well, there's a, there's a general learning crisis. We, we speak a lot about um, inclusive education and marginalized learners, learners with disabilities and so on, which is absolutely the case. I mean, these groups are uh, far more heavily marginalized. But there is a general learning crisis where children going to mainstream school just aren't learning. They're not, they're not enjoying their education. They're not engaged. There's, there's perhaps an argument to feature more of these skills and um, hard and soft skills into education. I spoke to Bob Lentz on this, on this program about project-based learning, for example. And that's, mm -hmm. that's the idea that you, that you work on real projects throughout the term and then sort of get the learning into the projects rather than the other way around, um, which I, I mean, I'm, I'm all for it. Sounds, it sounds fantastic. And something I wanted to ask as well, this, it seems, it's interesting that this is done to specifically uh, learners that are marginalized from mainstream education. And ironically, perhaps you say now that this is actually feeding back into mainstream education, but just parking that for a moment, how does this idea sit with the, the sort of international understanding and um, the international push perhaps for inclusive education within mainstream settings? If you, if you read UN literature or World Bank literature and so on, you'll see a big push for getting everyone into the same schools, into the same classrooms. Now, what you're talking about here is something slightly different. I mean, what would you, what would you say about that? Um, that sort of balancing act between those between the two. Yes, thanks, Richard, for that. Yes, that we are being criticised for uh, segregation, but you'll be surprised. I like our deaf community. We started with the inclusion of the deaf learners only in two thousand and seven when I entered this office. Now you might ask why, because back then we had a. Uh, support in the form of the Icelandic International Development Agency. So they said, okay, they came here for fisheries. Then they had about special education and eventually they were more interested in deaf education. 
But yes, so back then what hampers our deaf learners to access education beyond grade 10. When I started office, let me take you back. When I started in this office, uh, special schools, resource schools ran only up to grade 10. Oh, no, I cannot know equivalent that to, you, to do your standards, but that is already some part of the secondary level of education. So uh, then our kids were there from uh, pre-primary up to grade 10, and then they must go to grade 11 and 12, but at grade 12 level, they exit education. Now, why only grabbed up to grade 10? Because our schools were considered as combined schools, and uh, as such, the teachers were not necessarily trained to to, to, to teach learners at high school level. So we had to let them go at the age of 16, uh, entering grade 10. Now these learners then will go to a mainstream school and that's what we call inclusion then. So they were all these years segregated at the age of grade, uh, at the age of 16, grade 10, then they go for inclusion. And why is ICDA, the Icelandic, the National Development Agency was very instrumental because they offered to pay for sign language interpreters. Now, sign language interpreters was quite a, 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 a difficult, thorny issue because they were not trained teachers. So they were just proficient in Namibian sign language, but the deaf kids needed them to work alongside the teacher to translate what the teacher says they translate into Namibian sign language. And that was the, 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 the difficulty that the government faced because they cannot take on board unqualified teachers. So I see that paid for them. The visual impaired, it's easier. Once they've acquired the skills in brailing, they can do it. In fact, we have a very good story now of a little girl who started last year pre-primary and she's now in grade one. And all, and she started from the start in mainstream schools. So when when that happened, it reached all the newspapers. It was big. Then many people ask, now why is she the first one? Because normally we we need a child with a disability. We put him or her in a special or resource school. Then we said, okay, we have a policy, and that policy says. A parent can put a child everywhere he or she wants. And this parent wanted her little girl to be taught where her sibling is, her older brother. So we had to make it happen. But I must say, these parents are very fortunate. They are, they, all the support was there, all the grandparents on both sides. They were from the start very involved. She had the braille machine. She had this lots of money involved. So we cannot compare it with a child who's disadvantaged and poverty stricken that, that the two scenarios are totally different. So all that we needed was an assistant teacher for her to make it happen. And I sit on a committee, the EDF uh, Committee's Educational Development Fund Committee, and there there was funds to pay for this assistant teacher because assistant teachers are not a reality in our, as we speak now, but we're striving towards that. It's close to being uh, uh, accepted. And then it means we can, once it's established on the government structure, then we can uh, appoint them. So that is basically the inclusion of the deaf and the blind in a nutshell. They criticize us for putting in so much funds for one little girl who's blind, because they feel, how can one person have an own assistant? But that's a start for me. And if there are other kids in future who wants to start from 
pre-primary, then we have that school as a hub to say every all the resources are there. The inclusive environment is there. The teachers are more supportive. So for me, it's still a win-win as opposed to what we had before. Does that answer your question, Richard? I speak, I tend to speak too much. Not at all. It's perfect. <laughs> I think people would much rather listen to you than me. Um, it's I'd describe it as pragmatism, perhaps. Let's think about the future. Just finally, what are your thoughts for the future of inclusive education? We're approaching 2030, the deadline for the Sustainable Development Goals. Do you think we're on track to reach SDG 4? Okay, Richard, I haven't spoken about my colleagues and they really hold my arms. Uh, four ladies, I mentioned before, we have four disabilities that we focus on, but obviously they interlink. We have the visually impaired, the deaf, the intellectually impaired and learning difficulties. So the four, the four of them, they report to me as the supervisor. And I'm now, I, I, I told you I'm a deaf expert then, but now working with them, I had to get a little bit acquainted with the other disabilities as well. And they are very strong. So they teach me every day a few things. Yes, so uh, together, the five of us, and we also have three deaf, deaf uh, adults who's responsible for the Namibian Sign Language. That is very important because they the native users of this language. So the five of us, ladies, with the three deaf, we actually had a, a division. Now, this division is now responsible for inclusive education. And the, the bad thing is that in the regions, we don't have foot soldiers. It's just us at national level. So in the regions, we have regional school counselors. So they address all the soft skills, the psychosocial support, and we also have race coordinators who are responsible for HIV and AIDS. So together we join hands. They're not trained in disabilities and inclusion, but at least they have the passion for it. So they strengthen our hands in the region. So with that, in, in the country, it's still difficult. There's not a lot of resources in the region. But if I look at... Uh, SDG goals. I would think uh, from education, we have achieved quite significantly, uh, despite everything. And sometimes you cannot just look at the challenges, you must also embrace positive and the good. And like I said, we have a lot of support. Our top management, all of them have background in special needs. So we really we really get the support, sometimes not necessarily the financial support, but at least the emotional support and that acknowledgement that, yes, what you are doing is good. And, you know, we have signed the UN United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities in 2007. I think I was in this office already, it could have been 2010, 11, 12. Then we had to report as a country. So we were all brought together. And then many of those ministries who also signed, I mean, the government signed it. That means every ministry should be aware of this convention. But it was shocking that we were at least three. I can recall health, obviously, they knew about it and us. And there was another ministry that I cannot now remember. The rest never heard of this document. So that's why I feel strong that we should not use inclusive education, we should say inclusion of everybody so that people stop looking at disabilities and that is Ministry of Education. Even the Ministry of Higher Education, once our learners leave our schools, there's no sign language interpreters at the university. 
braille machines. Okay, the University of uh, uh, Namibian University, they have a disability unit where they translate uh, the written text into braille for learners, for students there. So we are coming on board gradually. And I must also acknowledge the government, we have a disability affairs. This is headed by our deputy minister, who is a lady in a wheelchair. And she obviously, she pushes for that at parliament level. So like I said, the support is there, the awareness is being created, but we still have a far way to go. But I, I'm, I'm positive that yes, there is a wake up call, more ministries are on board and Yes, oh, and things are happening. Just I, I refer to uh, the schools that was built, the classrooms that were built recently with the Japanese funds. That when we got there, the UNICEF gave the funds through Japan, or they they sourced the funds through the Japanese government. And when we got there the first time, they were not happy because the door was too small. And the 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 the, the works inspector said, "But that is what do they call it?" The, the 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 template blueprint that we got that is what the ministry of works has and we cannot deviate from that so obviously there was a lot of uh, challenges and, and 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 blaming and all that you know but the good thing is after that experience uh, our works inspector went back and he went to train the planners in the region that yes we should plan inclusively schools should have bigger doors for wheelchairs there should be a ramp for a child in a wheelchair to access that building because there was no ramps there were, were stairs so <laughs> i'm laughing at this now but it was quite stressful <laughs> we had to impress the japanese <laughs> yes uh, so yeah that is our, our journey to inclusive education thank you richard exciting times ahead uh listen rachel thank you so much for coming on the show it's been brilliant to have you on to speak to you about this so interesting to hear what's been going on in namibia and uh let's keep in touch thank you so much richard it was a joy speaking to you and you take care that was rachel philander my thanks to her for joining me today thank you for listening I hope you enjoyed this episode of Golf 4. If you did, please do share it around. You can also subscribe. Listen to a new episode every Wednesday. I'll see you next week. <laughs>